This week, your lucky number comes up, because we're playing the policy game. We're going to be hearing voices never before heard on this program. Tracy Ellis Ross, Lawrence Fishburne, Lorenz Tate. It's a story of adventure, crime, rivalry, and community on Chicago's South Side in the 1940s. I'm talking about Bronzeville, and this is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. The Great Migration is the name that we give to the historical movement of black Americans from the rural south to the industrial urban north in the mid-20th century. To give you a sense of its immense scale, in 1930, 79% of black Americans lived in the south. By 1960, that number was down to 60%. What we have today is, at least partially, a story of that migration. The protagonist of our story, Jimmy Tillman, journeys from rural Arkansas to Bronzeville. Bronzeville is, and was, a vibrant black neighborhood on Chicago's south side. Every great American city has its tragedy, and Chicago's, especially, is racial segregation. This isn't news, I'm sure, but that segregation was built not just by individual bigotry and mistrust, but by law business, and urban planning. But Bronzeville was a thriving, successful community in the 1940s. And its secret was the policy game. Policy, an underground lottery that served as a wealth redistribution mechanism and de facto economic engine for Bronzeville. White-owned banks wouldn't lend to black folks, but the policy racket concentrated wealth and acted like a bank. As you'll hear from Laurent and Lamar Tate, my guests this week, policy didn't end in Chicago until the 70s, when it was overtaken by the Illinois Lottery. But there'll be more discussion of history, not only of the history that inspired the show, but the history of the show itself, after you immerse yourself in Episode 1 of Bronzeville. Bronzeville is brought to you by... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bronzeville. For episode one, the winning numbers are 64263. You're listening to radio station WKW in Chicago, Illinois. And this is the WKW News Hour with your host, Hop Hopewell. June 11th, 1945, our big story. Negro gangster Everett Copeland, the top dog of Chicago's South Side Numbers racket, enters Terre Haute Federal Prison today on tax evasion charges. Copeland's conviction came at the end of an exhaustive investigation by the FBI. He'll have a lot of time to consider paying his taxes like normal citizens do. He's going to be serving a two-year sentence. 
In sports news, the Cubs beat the Reds yesterday in both games of a doubleheader at Wrigley. Curtis Randolph, goddamn. You have no idea how good it is to clap eyes on you. Everett, how you doing? Good to see you. How they treating you in here? Shit, you have no idea. The guards in this place? Some of these crackers don't even bother to take their sheets off before they head out to work. So I hear. And you can believe they do not take kindly to a black man who makes more money than they make. Oh, considerably more. Considerably, man. And I've been trying to pull some strings to get your place somewhere else, but it's federal beef, Everett. That takes an act of God to fix. I mean, we're very lucky with the way things worked out. Yeah, 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 we are. And I'm going to be all right. It doesn't matter how ugly these sons of bitches are. 200 other black cons in my back tell them they can't push me too hard. Mm-hmm. Plus, I got some new cat in here right now. Do tell. Yeah, this guy, uh, Sammy Manetti, used to drive cars for Frank Nitti. Capone's Nitti? The very same. For every Negro in this joint, they got ten white men and five of those are wops. Why would this Manetti character give a damn about what happens to you, Everett? Because he's ambitious as hell. Ever since Capone went down, it's been a free-for-all with those guys. Smart kid like Manetti seeing a, an opportunity for advancement when he gets out. Hmm. And you're his ticket? You want to learn how something's done, you talk to the master. Hmm. Could have sworn I was the master. You, yeah, true, you are. But, but you're out there, so he's talking to the master who learned from the master. <laughs> Fair enough. I think he wants to start his own wheel. And he's looking for you to teach him how? Yeah. He thinks uh, having a wheel is all there is to it? I'm disabusing him of that notion. Hmm. They got poor white folks, I guess. That they do, that they do. Well, just be careful, Everett. These eye ties came in during Prohibition. They made sure no colored folks made a nickel off of bootlegging. They are not well known for their restraint when it comes to taking stuff from us. Yeah, you told me about that. But that was before we had this kind of power. And that was Capone, right? Mm-hmm. So listen, Curtis, I gotta ask you something. Yeah, I figured there was a reason you asked me to come all the way down here. You know my brothers. You know they're good men. Of course they are. There's only so many strings I can pull from in here the next couple years. And that's why you got your brother Jesse. And he's a good man. I, I get into a fight. The two men I want by my back are Jesse and Zeke. But when it comes to running this business, I worry about him. He's never had that fire, that, that leadership thing. You know what he told me before he shipped out to the war? What'd he tell you? He told me he was going to be fine because he was good at taking orders. Well, he'll rise to the occasion. Besides, you'll be advising him from in here. There's only so much I can do from in here, Curtis. And he's still got to stand up in front of the men and make it all happen. You know better than me what it takes to do that. What are you asking me? Well, I know you're all past this stuff now, but you made all this, you know? This is your empire, if it's anyone's. I'm asking you... You're asking me to go back to doing what I used to do. I don't know if Jesse can keep it all together. Look, I'm out of the game, Everett. I'm playing something a lot bigger now for all of us. Now, you're going to have to trust your family with this. I trust Jesse with my life. Problem is, I know him. Look, if I do what you're asking me to do, Everett, we risk losing everything. I've spent too much time and put in too much effort building what we've got now. If I step back, we all step back. Besides, you know Anna. What do you think she'll say? <laughs> I think she'll kill your ass. Or worse. Believe me, you do not want Anna Randolph telling you she's going to pray for your immortal soul. <laughs> you got yourself a good woman, my friend. I know I do. Look, Everett, you're going to have to do what you can do from in here. Jesse might surprise you. A man ends up in a position like that, he finds out what he's made of. He'll do all right. I'll keep an eye on everything for you. Keep it wrapped up tight. Everybody knows what happens if we don't stand together. All right, all right. That's, that's all I can ask for. Thank you, Curtis. You know I'm watching out for you, brother. I do. Now, this uh, Manetti, what's his play? 
Ah, he's just trying to learn all he can. No harm there. Now you be careful. I, I'm no fool. I'm not telling him anything he couldn't figure out by looking. All right, then. All right. Say, what do you hear from your sister? Who? Lisa? Sure. She's good, you know. She's just graduating college next week. Degree in economics. Damn, they grow up fast, don't they? Yeah, they do. Now have her come see me when she's done. I'll set her up at the bank. You know, Curtis, thank you. Listen, thank you, man. No need to thank me. Lisa's smart as hell. I want her working for me. You and your brothers did a good job keeping her out of the business. Yeah, she's going to be the future. Kids like her, that's why we're doing all this in the first place, you know? For the good of the race. Good of the race, my ass. Our mother made it clear she didn't want any of that. And you remember my mama. I do. I do. How about you? You all right? I'm good, man. I'm good. Anna, she's tough, but she's good. We're going down to Havana next week, catch some good sun. Oh, man, it's bad enough I got to be in here. Now I got that place stuck in my head. Look, you'll get back to it, Everett. Just keep your head down and stay out of trouble and trust your family. Doing my best. Thanks for coming out, Curtis. That's all right, brother. It's all right. No problem. Step this way, prisoner. So how's your friend? He's good. It's good to have friends. That it is. You tell him about me? I did. Oh, what'd he say? He said, don't trust the white man. <laughs> now those are some genuine words of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where, uh, where were we? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... Check. God damn it. But that's what you get when you learn how to play chess in jail. You get put in check. Yeah, well... We can't all afford a fancy education at some swell college. University, okay? Get that right. University. You're getting your ass whooped by a man of letters. <laughs> yeah? Which letters? F and U, my man. <laughs> F and U. No, you set yourself up to lose that before. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get out of this. I'm, I, got, I got something up my sleeve. The Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. The Faraday Boarding House. Hello, Mrs. Faraday. Oh, it is so sad to see you going, Lisa. We are very proud of you. Of all the girls who've boarded here, you've been one of our favorites. <laughs> Thank you. So how was graduation? I'm sure it was fine. What? They didn't have any of us colored students get up on stage. Oh, um... It's okay, Mrs. Faraday. I'm sorry, Lisa. I got a great education. That's the important thing. Maybe someday they'll let us be part of the show. But right now... I got what I needed from it, and that's all I really care about. Well, it's very practical of you, Lisa. I try to be practical. I always try. Um, I'd ask if you need any help packing, but you seem to have it pretty well taken care of. Yes, ma'am. Almost done. But thank you. We're really going to miss you, Lisa. I'll miss you too, Mrs. Faraday. Now, you remember what I told you, right? You told me so much, Mrs. Faraday. About men. About men, Lisa. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> the best way to stay in charge is to make him think he's in charge. That's right. But you ever tell Mr. Faraday I told you that? Your secret's safe with me, ma'am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'd better go answer that. It's your friend Marjorie. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Margie. Well, I'll leave you two to chat. 
You make sure and come and see me and Mr. Faraday before you leave, Lisa. Of course, ma'am. She's so sweet. She's a good lady. They've been very good to me here. It's a nice house. It's a shame it's so far from campus, though. I can't imagine having to make that walk every day. <laughs> Not like I had a choice, right? I guess so. Hey, I brought you your diploma. Thank you. Don't you want to look at it? I know what it says. I wish you could have been there. I could have. They would have let me sit in the audience. You know what I mean, Lisa. I know what you mean. It's all right. I came here to get an education. I got that. You got more than that, though, didn't you? I mean, you made some good friends, right? Of course. Well, I know I did. And you aren't just my friend. You saved me. If you hadn't helped me with those papers, I don't know what I would have done. You'd have been okay. Well, I disagree. And you opened my eyes, too. How so? It's embarrassing to admit this, but I never really thought about what life must be like for the coloreds until we met. You helped me understand some very important things. Hmm. And I hope we stay great friends after college. I won't be too far away. And you can come see me anytime. You would love my parents' lake house. And you can come see me too, Margie. I think you'd be intrigued by the South Side. <laughs> well, I guess I better get going. The sorority's having a big bash for us. You could come with me. I'm gonna finish up here, then get out. I'm sorry about that whole thing with them. We tried to get you in. Mm-hmm. Well, you take care, okay? And please keep in touch. You take care of yourself, Marjorie. February 21st, 1947. Osceola, Arkansas. Two years later. You gotta know this is a bad idea, Jimmy. You mess with this union stuff, you gonna get killed. Hell, you gonna get me killed. That's even worse. And why you gotta say that, Arthur? Man came all the way down here risking his damn life just to tell us about the union. You ain't even gonna listen at him? Right. You said it. Risking his life. I take that stuff serious, then I'm risking my life. No thank you. I got me a job. That's more than most folks. So you just happy selling for what you already got? I'm selling for not dying, yeah. Shit, Jimmy. Paper mill's been good to you. One so good for old Hank now, was it? That ain't funny, man. You got a roof over your head? You eat regular? You got a dollar in your pocket on Saturday night? Shit, I got a quarter in my pocket on Saturday night. Enough for some whiskey. <laughs> and that's all you want. Work like a meal Monday through Friday, then get drunk on Saturday. And repent on Sunday. Yeah, well, I want more than that, Arthur. I want a lot more than that. And you think the union's gonna give you that? You think some communist just gonna hand you the keys to the American dream? No, man, I don't. But I do think it's a step forward. You don't get nowhere by just standing still. You got that right. Which is why I'm turning around and walking my black ass home. Oh, come on now, don't. Come on now, brother. No, think about it, Jimmy. If we know about this meeting, the man knows about it. I don't need my head cracked open tonight. You take care of yourself, my brother. You're just gonna go drink. Nope. I'm going home and cracking open that book you gave me. Shit, boy, everybody knows you can't read. <laughs> yeah, you funny, but looks ain't everything, fool. <laughs> hey, Jimmy. Hey there, Nathan. The union doesn't see black. It doesn't see white. It doesn't see men. It doesn't see women. The union sees workers. It sees laborers. It sees you. Look. Huh? Look at my hand. 
Like this, all I can do is wave goodbye. But like this, like this, we all stand together. Like this, we are a fist and we cannot be stopped. Now, Senator Taft and Congressman Hartley, they want to take that away. They want to turn this fist into a hand that's waving goodbye. They'll tell you it's for your own good. But brothers, I'm here to tell you, the unionism was out of their pockets. You need to stand strong. You need to stand together. Oh, shit. Company goons. There he is. Get that dirty coming. here, riling up our niggers. Good way to get yourself cut open, you commie son of a bitch. No, you don't have to do this. These men, they're just... These spooks are just fine without you. Got him, Charlie. <laughs> Got him. Hey, Crackle. Huh? <clears throat> what the hell? Let him go. Boy, you just attacked a white man. You know what's gonna happen to you now? Yeah, I know how you boys do. You think having a knife makes you special? Then I guess I'm special, too. Come on, here. Come here! Well, come on, nigga! Stop jumping around! Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh Jesus. Oh, my God. Is he... Uh, Dead? I don't know. But I ain't sticking around to find out. I sure ain't waiting for his friend there to wake up and start hollering. Well, we have to get out of here. Uh-huh. What, what, what are you doing? I don't know about you, man. But down here, a colored man stabs a white man. He best get out of town fast. This old boy's buying a ticket for me to get the hell out of here. I always wanted to go north. Guess this is my chance. If I was you, I'd get gone, too. Those crackers know who you are, I suspect. Yeah, they definitely do. Damn it. All right. All right, I'm, I'm coming with you. Safety numbers, that, that, that okay with you? Yeah, you're fine by me. We need to lay low to sun up. Then we get to the train station. I know a fella. Come on. I'm coming. I'll be right there. Jimmy? What the hell? I need your help, Arthur. Let me use your bomb. Sure. What happened? Who's this white man? This is Ben Faulkner. He's that union fella I was telling you about. Oh, shit. Jimmy, what did you do? Your friend saved my life. We gotta get out of town. We just need your place to hold up till morning. Shit. All right, all right. Damn, Jimmy, what happened? Especially you know as little as possible. But we'll be going as soon as sun up, I promise you. Where you going? Away from here. Far away from here. Look, it ain't like I got family here anyway, so... You got friends, man. I know that, Arthur. I know. Thank you. I suppose you'll be wanting that book back. Oh, you just looking for an excuse not to read it. Damn, Jimmy. It's fat. Take me a year to plow through this thing. Besides, you might need it. You sure? Sure. All right, man. Thank you. Come on, Faulkner. Thank you. What's that book? Oh, it's here. 
It's called Black Metropolis. It's all about colored folks living in Chicago. Seems this place, Bronzeville, is a place to be for an up-and-coming Negro on the run like myself. <laughs> they gotta be out there looking for us. Oh, well, the one you knocked out sure enough they can get a look at you. Yeah. All they know is you and maybe some colored fella. We ought to be all right here. Yeah, well, I still ain't sleeping tonight. You and me both. Bronzeville will return after a brief word from our sponsors. We had this guy, Hank Dixon. Saturday night, all of us were watching him get married to Lucinda Watson. Getting drunk, dancing, and just tearing it all up. Hank had a hard time. You know, his sister died in a fire, and his first wife died of TB. Ain't never had any luck until he met her. She was beautiful, man. She just lit up a room. He comes back to work on Monday, and we're hauling logs off the truck for the chipper. He's got that look of a man that spent the wedding night the right way, you know? <laughs> One second later, the brakes on that old truck slipped, and where Hank was, was just a pile of logs. Next day, not even 24 hours, Next day, man, company's got a new guy doing Hank's job. Like he wasn't even there. I remember saying to myself, it's never gonna be me. Company man, never gonna look at me and shrug off one more dead nigga like I'm just some delivery that's come up short. There's something better for me out there. Yeah, I, I hear you, Jimmy. The only thing tougher than being a working man in America is being a black working man. You know in the Soviet Union they have laws against race prejudice? How's that work? They figured out how to outlaw what people think? No, but, but they can outlaw what people do. They, they don't have these problems over there. They got black folks over there? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they, no, they got Uzbeks and Tartars there. They're dark-skinned as hell. Some of them even blacker than you. And it's against the law of Jim Crow? Yeah, it is. Hmm. Sounds all right to me. Say... You a communist, man? Ah, uh, no, I'm red-blooded American. But I'm not blind. I see what's wrong with my country, and I see someone else doing things better. We got some things to fix here. You know that better than me. Yes, I do. Oh, nothing. Uh, it's gonna be a long night. Yeah, it is. Anything to see Henry Armstrong fight just once. Uh, he was something. Uh, he was the best. He knocked out the champ in six rounds. I've never seen anything like him. Mm -hmm. Guess it makes sense to retire when you're at the top. Only place left is to go down, right? Yeah, but I heard that's not why he did it. Why'd he do it then? No, word is he heard the calling. I hear he's a minister now, preaching the word. No shit. Damn. Well, how you gonna argue with that? You got a hell of a hook yourself there, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. I had to learn that the hard way. Grew up in a county home. Never end up with any family. People have their way of stepping up to you. Tough ain't enough, though. I learned that fast. That there's always someone tougher waiting to take a shot. Gotta be smart. Gotta be ready for anything. 
Ben. Wait, wait. Ben, wake up. Wait, wait so, sorry. Sorry. I must, uh, we got to get going. Uh, all right. Come on. You got us two second-class tickets to Chicago just like you wanted. Perfect spot for both of us. A lot of union folks up there, and you can finally see Bronzeville. Can't tell you I'm not happy about that, but just kind of thought it. I'd get there by choice when the time came. Not necessity. A working man's rarely got a choice, Jimmy. That's why we have a union. Can I help you? Yes, uh, two for dinner. Mm. This will be the two of you? Yes. Sorry, sir. I have to seat you separately. You what? Excuse me for a moment, please. Some things never change. It don't matter. I'll eat at the back at my seat. No, this is supposed to be over. They, they have to seat you with everyone else. Chef needs to have a word with you. Me? Yes, come this way, into the kitchen. This the boy? It is. I'll take care of this. You go home back to work. Okay. Fool. What the hell is wrong with you? So I just want some dinner. I'll take care of you. But you don't sit out there with the white folks. Thought that was over. Boy, that ain't never gonna be over. But the Mitchell decision... The what? What was that? That Negro congressman? Supreme Court decision said... I don't see no Supreme Court here, boy. Look at me. You think I care where you sit? It ain't up to me. And when this train is running, it ain't up to the Supreme Court neither. Take this and sit your fool ass back down in your seat. You gotta learn to choose your battles. Oh, yeah? That's how you got this sweet, sweet job, choosing your battles? Tell me, old man, did you ever win any of them? Boy, you got some brass on you. And I'm gonna tell myself you know better, and you just taking out your anger on whoever happens to be in front of you. Because if I believe you thought that way, I tell you you can wait to eat till you get to Chicago. I just hope you live long enough to have some young'un tell you to your face that all you've done ain't shit to him. Now go, take this, and get out of here. Well, I can't get there soon enough. Well, map says Bronzeville's a few blocks that way. Where your union folks at? Other side of town. I'm gonna go look them up. You know, but everything I hear about the south side felt like you ought to be able to get situated real quick. Hey, Jimmy. Uh-huh. Thank you, man. Those two crackers would've killed me. <laughs> well, I couldn't see my way to letting that happen. Give me a little while to get settled. I'll, I'll look you up. Maybe we'll take a trip to the Soviet Union. Yeah, maybe. You take care of yourself, my friend. You too, Ben Faulkner. God damn! We have a saying here in Black Metropolis. If you're trying to find a certain Negro in Chicago, stand on the corner of 47th and South Park long enough, 
and you're bound to see it. There is continuous and colorful movement here. Shoppers streaming in and out of stores, insurance agents turning in their collections at a funeral parlor, club reporters rushing into a newspaper office, irate tenants filing complaints, job seekers moving in and out of the unemployment office. Today, the picket line may be calling attention to unfair labor practices. Tomorrow, a girl may be selling tags on the corner for the hospital or community house. The next day, you will find a group of boys soliciting signatures to place a Negro on the all-star football team, and always a beggar or two in the background. A blind man, cup in hand, tapping his way along, or a legless veteran propped up against the side of a building. This is Bronzeville's Central Shopping District, where rents are highest and Negro merchants compete fiercely with whites for the choicest commercial spots. A few steps away from the intersection is the largest Negro-owned department store in America, attempting to challenge the older and more experienced white retail establishments across the street. At an exclusive eat shop, just off the boulevard, you may find a Negro congressman or ex-congressman dining at your elbow or former heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. Beret pushed back on his head, chuckling at the next table. In the private dining room, there may be a party of civic leaders, black and white, planning reforms. A few doors away behind the Venetian blinds of a well-appointed tavern, the big shots of the sporting world crowd the bar on one side of the house while the respectable elite take its beers and sizzling steaks in the booths on the other side. Within a half mile of 47th and South Park is the Negro Staff Provident Hospital, the George Cleveland Hall Library, the YWCA, the largest colored Catholic church in the country, the largest Protestant congregation in America, the Hotel Grand, Parkway Community House, and the Michigan Boulevard Garden Apartments for the middle-income families. As important as any of these is a large four-square-mile green Washington Park, playground of the South Side. Here in the summertime, thousands of Negroes of all ages congregate to play softball and tennis, to swim, or just lounge around. Within Black Metropolis, there are neighborhood centers of activity having their own drug stores, grocery stores, theaters, pool rooms, taverns, and churches. But 47 the South Park overshadows all business areas in size and importance. Bronzeville. 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 Now that's Bronzeville. Brother man, brother man, how lucky do you feel today? Sorry, what? Numbers, brother. What's your lucky number today? I don't, I don't have a... What? Man, where you from? I'm offering you a chance at some real money. Arkansas. Oh, shit. I was kidding. But that explains your country-ass clothes, don't it? How long you been here, boy? I just got off the train. What? <laughs> no kidding. Man, that's perfect. That's great. Welcome to Bronzeville, my brother. Now, what numbers you want? I truly ain't got no idea what you're talking about. Casper. My name's Casper. I'm talking about numbers. I'm talking about the policy wheel, country. Name's not country. It's Jimmy. And we got numbers down in Arkansas. What makes you think I'm looking to throw my money away on that foolishness? <laughs> that foolishness makes everything go around here, boy. So you're a smart fella. I could tell when I looked at you. I tell you what. 
You being new here and all, you buy a ticket off me and I'll show you around. Think of it as buying yourself a tour guide. And if you win, you gotta buy me a beer. <laughs> okay, Casper. I can probably live with that. What's the smallest ticket I can buy? Dime gets you in a game, you pick three numbers. I know how it works. I'm only giving you a dime. What are you talking about? This is the Copeland's brother's wheel, man. Nothing rigged here. Right. No, I mean it. Look, you ask around. The brothers are straight up. That's why everyone loves them. Here, come on. Buy a ticket. Take three numbers, whatever you want. I got a dream book if you need help. A dream book? Yeah. Mama Louise's dream book is the source, man. You tell me what you dreamed about last night, and she'll tell you what your numbers are. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, I dreamed I was living on a sailboat. Okay, hang on. Here, let me see. Sailboat, sailboat, sailboat. Clear skies or storm? Hey, I don't know. It was raining, I guess. Here you go. Sailing a storm means disaster coming. 32. 32. That's one of your numbers. Got it. All right, 32. No, no, no. Now, now we need two more. Look, you going for a full gig on that job? Yeah, Casper, come on. Just make it up. I ain't going to win nothing. Look, I'll give you a dime just to shut you up. <laughs> Damn you easy. All right. 36, 24, 35. If those numbers don't come up, maybe that girl will. You want to saddle that gig? What? Saddle the gig. Another dime means if only two of those come up, you still win. <laughs> no. All right, so now, uh, so where we headed? I'm going all over today, man. Today's pickup day. But that won't stop me laying it all out for you. First thing, you got a place to stay? I, I, I got nothing. All right, I know a place. It ain't fancy, but you get your own room and your own bathroom. I'll take you by there shortly, but you gotta promise me. You're gonna register to vote soon as you're settled in. To vote? Yeah, man, to vote. Shit, you gotta vote. You and me all on our own, we don't mean jack to City Hall. But all this, all these color folks, we all get together, we got some real power in this town. Hell, you ask Mr. Roosevelt how he won the vote in Chicago. He'll tell you. Except he's dead. What, like he'd pick up the telephone if Jimmy Crack Corn from Arkansas called him back when he was alive? <laughs> I'll tell you whose phone call he did pick up, though. Man at the top around here. Eyeball Rand. This is his town. And you don't forget it, brother. Thought you said the Copelands ran everything. The day-to-day, -day, sure. But Mr. Randolph, he built all this. Then he handed it off to every Copeland. Him and his two brothers, Jesse and Zeke. Jesse's running things right now, though. On account of Everett doing a two-year bit down in Terre Haute. Yeah, I heard about it. Tax evasion or something, right? Yep. Feds came down hard on all this a few years back. Looked like everything was getting sewn up and shut down. But Everett, he's too smart. Him and Mr. Randolph, they worked it out that Everett just went away for a little while and no one else felt any heat. But everything you see here, all of it, they got a piece of it. They put money into the hospital, the library, the best restaurants. Hell, they own the best clubs. That's where you usually find Zeke, especially the Royale. That's the best joint in town. I'm talking about world-class acts come through there like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Billie Holiday. Zeke kind of runs the mid-level stuff. I see him from time to time when he's passing out orders. He answers to Jesse, and whenever he comes back, Jesse will go back to answering to him. Word is, Everett's still giving orders from the slam. So they run the only wheel? No. A lot of folks got a lot of wheels. But the Copelands run the most, and the most honest. 
There's plenty for everyone, though. All the different gangs pretty much get along here. And the cops let that slide? Sure. Johnny Nab's in the pocket anyway. Hell, half the people you see here are making some off the Copeland family or the wheels. Shit, or both. Man, I mean, I read all about it, but I can't believe I'm actually seeing it. I mean, I'm here. We ain't got nothing like this back at home. Look at that. Negro cab drivers, Negro cops, Negro stow owners. Shit, my friend Arthur, he always telling me how good we got it back at home. How I ain't gonna never be better than what we already got. If he saw this, he'd lose his damn mind. It's just the beginning, too. Bronzeville's growing. More and more of our people are moving up in the world. Shit. You think I'm pretty now? You wait till I'm the colored president. What? President of all colored folk? No, man. Color president of the United States of America, goddammit. <laughs> Listen, I won't hold my breath, but I sure will vote for you when the time comes. Damn straight. Say, man, what you do down south? Whatever I could. Last job was a paper factory. Excuse me, gents. You ain't excused. Take what you got in that bag, boy. Man, what the hell? Do you know who this belongs to, fool? Yep. Belongs to me now. Hand it over. Now. Nah, you don't want to do that, brother. Just let me and my friend here move along and everything will be fine. This don't concern you. You better run along, boy. I've been running. And I'm feeling like it's time to stick around a while for a change. Put down some roots, you know what I'm saying? Besides, you look like the kind of chumps that like to flash a blade and get your way. You ever have to cut someone with that thing? Man, I will cut you right over. You're welcome to try. Come on. Oh, God damn. Now take your pal and get the hell out of here. Or you want me to give you what somebody gave him? Come on, man. Let's get out this. Go! On, get! Damn, Negro! You sure as hell took care of business there. You know those guys? Shit, I never seen them before. And I know everybody around here. You just saved me a whole lot of trouble. And you say the Copeland's a decent chunk of change. Yeah, well. No. No, that was great, man. That was great. I think I might know some work that you might be better suited for than working in some factory. You interested? Hell yeah. Yeah. Good. Come with me then. You're gonna love this. Stay tuned after the credits for a preview of the next episode of Bronzeville. This episode of Bronzeville was brought to you by Cinema Gypsy Productions, Tateman Entertainment, and Audio HQ. This episode of Bronzeville is directed by Lawrence Fishburne, written by Josh Olson, and featured the following performances. Lawrence Fishburne as Curtis Eyeball Randolph, Lorenz Tate as Jimmy Tillman, Tika Sumter as Lisa Copeland, Omari Hardwick as Jesse Copeland, Wood Harris as Everett Copeland, Lamar Tate as Zeke Copeland, Corey Hardrick as Casper Dixon, Patrick Husinger as Sammy Manetti, Brittany Snow as Marjorie, Michael Raymond James as Ben Faulkner, Ren T. Brown as narrator, Antoine Tanner as factory worker, Arlen Escarpeta as Arthur, Marcus T. Pope as dining car waiter, Beth Maitland as Mrs. Faraday, Chris Frontiero as angry white man, 
Chris Douglas Reed as Angry White Man 2. Additional voices by John Cothran Jr., Philip Hirsch, Brandon Scott, Kevin Brief, Hottie Williams, Matthew David Smith, Keytrail Hamilton, Joshua Walker, Lauren Kroom, Ashford J. Thomas. Executive producers for the series are Lawrence Fishburne, Lorenz Tate, Helen Suglin, Laron Tate, Matt Couture, and Jeff McCarthy. Co-executive producers are J.P. Sarney and Lamar Tate. Produced by Casey Whalen. Composer, 1500 or nothing. Historical consultant, Michael Theobald. Story consultants, Dave Anthony, Charles Murray, and Adam Rifkin. Our production team includes casting director, Janelle Scuderi. Sound designer, Grayson Stone. Vocal coach, Denise Douse. Production sound mixer, Carlos Sotolongo. Still photographer, Celeste Holmes. Graphic designer, Mare Sasso. Assembly cutters, Robert and Michelle Montiel. Post-production assistant, Michael Keane. Second assistant director, Christian Atkins. Executive assistant to Mr. Fishburne, Greg Haynes. Executive assistant to Ms. Suglin, Audrey Kendrick. Production assistant, Atiana Fischetti. Caterer, Jenny Cook's Catering and Plant-Based Parties. Excerpts from the book Black Metropolis, a study of Negro life in a northern city by Sinclair Drake and Horace R. Caton, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, have been used with permission from the publisher. Bronzeville was recorded at L.A. Studios in Los Angeles, California. This has been your narrator, Ren T. Brown. From all of us in Bronzeville, thank you for listening to this audio theater for the mind. Next time on Bronzeville. Welcome to the Royale, baby. Oh, my Lord. You see what I'm dealing with here? Yeah, but you got to stand strong now on your own, Jesse. Better off of bonds. What brings you to Chicago? Well, just seeing how the other half lives. Man, you don't know how to play the same, do you? <laughs> it's Saturday night, man. Now drink to that. <laughs> now, I had the privilege and delight of talking with Laurent and Lamard Tate, two of the three brothers behind Tateman Productions, the third being Lorenz Tate, who plays Jimmy in the series. Laurent and Lamar spoke to me from their production office in Los Angeles, and we chatted about history, the city of Chicago, and the resonance of Bronzeville's story today. Take a listen. Laurent, Lamard, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. This is Laurent. <laughs> Hi, this is Lamard. Thank you. Hey, guys. Two of the Tate brothers out of the three. <laughs> So correct me in my understanding of the origins of this project. So your brother Lorenz was in the 2004 film Ray, the biopic of Ray Charles, and he was playing Quincy Jones, Q, the legendary record producer, composer. Um, during filming, he met Quincy Jones, who told him about the glorious self-sufficiency of Bronzeville in the 40s that was fueled by the policy game. Is that right so far? That is right in the sense that he didn't meet Q. We met Quincy Years ago, Quincy's kind of like um, a godfather of this industry. We've been knowing Q for, man, years. When Lorenz was actually a young man, he was trying to put him in a television show years ago. And when he sat down to do Ray, he had to sit down with Quincy and just, you know, kind of do some research and have a discussion with him. And upon that, they did talk about other things and he Quincy was like there's this incredible story that you guys should really know about and he proceeded to tell Lorenz about 
the Jones brothers, who his father, no relation, worked for. I don't know exactly what he did for him, but he explained that these guys were these really successful men at a time when uh, most people thought the African-Americans were being oppressed all over the world. In Chicago, on the South Side, at that time, these guys were actually kings in the sense that they were living like kings and the community treated them that way because they did so much for the community, building the first Black-owned bank, building uh, the Black-owned hospital, as well as department store. They, you know, these guys were really pillars of the community. And all of this worked on policy because they wouldn't have been able to get loans from the white-run banks, right? Absolutely. And what they did was, you know, they were, even though policy was deemed um, gambling and it was outlaw, these guys were also individuals that was reinvesting in the community. They, they, they were also subsidizing, you know, people's income through policy. I mean, you know, you, you spend a nickel and you wind up hitting uh, the number and get $5. That's a big increase from a nickel to $5. I mean, $5 back then went a long way. They just so happened to have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars at that time in the 1930s and 40s. So it seems like a lot of this was based on real life policy kings. Eddie Jones, Robin Hood Rowe. And then what I'm curious about the other research that inspired you and the team, because I remember reading definitely Black Metropolis, obviously, right? It's referenced in the show. Yes. Uh, And then I was wondering, there's so much about um, the Second Great Migration. I feel like, did you read Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns? Did that fall into it too? You you know what? It's crazy because everybody considers this the biggest migration based on the fact that the amount of people that actually came from the South to the North in terms of African-Americans. And we actually hired a research uh, specialist, this guy named Michael Theobald. Yeah, your dramaturg. Yeah, Michael was a bad guy, man. You know, he still is. He's incredible, man. So we relied on some of Michael's um, research. And it really, the, the irony here is that you know, we didn't really have to go too far. I mean, Michael was using articles. I mean, you can go to Chicago Defender, which was the major black publication of its time that was uh, distributed all the way to the South, uh, as well as up North. And they had all the articles you could imagine. Man. And fortunately for us, we were in a situation where, you know, we had a relationship with those folks. So Michael did incredible research, and this dude was, he was pulling stuff and articles out of nowhere. And we was like, how did you find this? He was like, man, research. And he's from Chicago, so that was kind of nice, too, to have a historian. Then that's exactly what he is. He just knew where all this stuff lay. Did you get the opportunity to, like, interrogate your own family histories? While Michael was telling you about the policy kings, like, do you know whether or not your grandparents played numbers? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yes. The the numbers, it's ironic that the numbers eventually would become the Illinois lottery as we know it today. All the lottery across this nation was generated from the policy, which is African-American owned and homegrown, if you will. So, 
yeah, man, my, <laughs> that's how we knew it. a lot of stuff. When we were fact checking, all I had to do was ask my grandmother. <laughs> Both of my grandmothers could tell us everything. You know, they were aware of all the stuff that we were doing. So um, that was kind of the the physical research that we did that we could fact check a lot of stuff. And it was great to know the numbers. Yeah, man. Yes, my, my grandparents and their relatives played the numbers. Absolutely. Do you know the, the writer Mickey Kendall? She's a Hyde Parker. She started the Solidarity is for White Women hashtag. No, I don't. I oh, she's awesome. She's a, she's a great Twitter um, activist and writer. She, she has written a lot about how Vice enabled black families in the Jim Crow North to help close the wealth gap mm-hmm. that redlining and other forms of discrimination created. And I think it's really interesting when we think about like American political dynasties, um, like the Kennedys, for example, who made their fortunes in bootlegging. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how how some things get legitimized with the coming of prohibition and then other things like policy get dogged by the state until the 70s. You know, this is Laurent again. You're absolutely right. You know, that type of hypocrisy is just systemic, man, when it comes to African-Americans. Anything that um, we attempted to do in a positive sense you know, we were, you know, scrutinized or it was taken away. Anything that allowed us to um, bridge that economic gap oftentimes was, you know, frowned upon. And it's unfortunate. I was talking to a friend who told me that uh, her parents are somebody in the family, like I think her great grandfather or father was a policy wheel owner and he had all this wealth and when he died none of that none of that wealth was transferred to the family it was taken just confiscated and it's kind of weird but i had a friend tell me that isn't that ironic that most of our heroes have fbi jackets on them you know martin luther king jr he was investigated by the fbi uh you look at um marcus garvey you look at uh, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, we don't know that atrocity from Huey P. Newton to um, Malcolm X. It's just, it's just the way it is, and it, it, is, it has been. But I, I can't, I don't know if Kennedy had a, a FBI jacket on him. You know what I mean? So, and I think there's something to say about that from a political standpoint, which is one of the things that the community at the time in Chicago was delivering the vote for white politicians, you know, is, you know, that was their, that was their um, political power was the vote. And it's, it's ironic that if you go to Chicago now is, you know, the gerrymandering in the, in the, in that state, in that city is insane. Yeah. You know, I was working with a, a relative that was running for, alderman at the time and he told me the redistricting that would happen the following election cycle and i was like why is that he was like because you know these people want to make sure they win the election and they start carving it up and it's legal it's just you know it's just, hey man it's it's a it's a legal way to cheat you know, yeah. And Chicago politics is what it is. It's very. It's nothing's changed from the back in the day. And it, there is a direct line 
and we always discuss this, there's a direct line with the policy kings and the political machine that they created to Barack Obama and his success as a uh, as a candidate, as a senator, as well as to become president. And it all is about that Chicago political machine. So Josh Olson was nominated for an Academy Award for his adaptation of A History of Violence, right? This is Lamar. Yes, that's true. I'm curious, why did you choose Josh for the for the project to be the scriptwriter? As we interviewed and tried to meet with different writers, uh, it was a process of just linking and having an alignment. Uh, when we shared the story with him in our first meeting, we basically said to go ahead and take some notes and, you know, let us see what you can come back with. In, in retrospect, he was the best available talent at that time. And it worked out perfect for what we had and what he came back with. And he understood where our vision was. And so we took that and we ran. <laughs> yeah, it's a really solid script. I just I have a question related to it because there's this moment in episode eight when Maestro Wojcinski, the conductor from visiting from New York, asks this uncomfortable question to Curtis Randolph about Porgy and Bess. And Curtis says, well, yeah, I've seen it, but it's complicated. And then Wojcinski says, it gets weird when white men write creative works for black men to perform. Is this exchange like a, was that Josh making a reference to being a white dude writing a black story? Uh, I This is Laurent. I don't think that... You know what? That's a good question. I, and that's one I would have to ask Josh, but I thought it was a very poignant place to put it. And it was um, well executed. And, it, you know, we're clearly aware that Josh is, of course, a white guy that wrote this this story. Um, and it's kind of like art imitating life. But like I tell people all the time, you know, for us, it wasn't about color. It was like who was available who could bring the story um, to fruition and who could best execute our vision. Because at the end of the day, we work, myself and um, Helen Suckling, Lawrence Fishburne partner, worked very close to Josh in terms of giving him guidance when he was in an area that was a little gray. We needed to be a little bit more clear. And just as a barometer to, you know, what's real and what isn't real you know, and what, how things would actually go because Josh can go to uh, a book or use Michael as a reference when I can go directly to a family member who lived it. So you and Helen had, uh, ultimate like control over the script. As producers, we, we, we allowed him to do what he does best, which is right. But there were some areas that Helen and I had to make sure that we were on the same page and doing this, all executing the same show. And this is Lamar to add to that. There were guidelines that were given prior to him going off to write. There was a template and a Bible that we all created together. But ultimately, the creation and the uh, storyline had come from us. And he then, again, that's why I said... The, the original concept yeah, the is concept from the Tate from brothers. The Tate yeah. brothers. It, for us, ethnicity was not um, a factor, nor was gender. This was about a, a, a concerted effort to execute a quality show. And we have such a dominating amount of African-American cast members, but there are other ethnic 
cast members are part of the the, the show as well, and uh, other than African Americans, and for us, it is it's kind of unique to have a different perspective that someone that was outside of the community that's writing it. So it, you can kind of get an objective perspective about it, but at the same time, all of those things, the bells and the whistles that we needed to kind of put on it, you know, it's going to come from within because there are certain things there. There are those cultural barriers that Josh had to kind of overcome and we were there to be the checks and balance of it certain things didn't fly if it didn't if it didn't pass the sniff test it didn't make it on page simple as that this is something from i think originally the disability rights movement but i've seen it applied to all sorts of different cultural contexts is the the mantra of nothing about us without us exactly right exactly and 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 it's one of those things that it's important that you know, we look at it from just pure talent, you know. Um, you have Academy Award, uh, a nominated actor in Fishburne. Lorenz was in the Academy Award winning movie, Crash. He was a part of Ray, which Jamie Foxx won the Academy Award. So for us, we went and got uh, Grammy Award winning producers to do the music. It's just we wanted to be top notch all around, and it, it is a representation of what Hollywood should be or a creative space should be. It should be colorblind. I wanted to to bounce off of that to the to the music, um, because the score that fifteen hundred and nothing did was absolutely fabulous. Yeah, uh, and I know that. So a man named Lawrence Pops Dobson scored the series. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing in another interview that you were all especially proud of the cinematic scoring that he pulled off in the knife fight sequence in episode one. Um, what can you tell me about that? And what can you tell me about the research that Pops did for the score? I can say that first and foremost, 1500 or nothing is an incredible collection of producers and musicians and artists. They you know, have worked with us on multiple uh, projects um, from commercials to TV shows that both Lamar and Lorenz have done in the past and currently are doing. You know, for them to go back in time, you know, it was great to have um, uh, Lawrence Dobson uh, pops, if you will, to be a part of it because he brought real musicians in. None of this stuff is synthesized and, you know, computer generated because it was a time and era we needed the instruments of that time and era and these guys are, are, are proficient in what they do and so what we would do is give him reference and you know I work closely with him as well to kind of guide it as the producer I was all over the place uh, and I was making sure that I would give them references to the ideal song Josh would give us kind of an idea of what that song he himself have thought would be there at that time doing his research. I would then find the song, pluck it out, give it to Dobson and say that this is kind of the vibe that we're looking for. And then they would go in and recreate that, that world. And in the terms of the knife fight, I was there with those guys telling them how to kind of communicate and express what that moment feels like. So all of the score that you hear in the audio series, I'm there the whole time. Um, there are times where Lamard and Lorenz both came down and put their input on the score as well. But the night fight in particular, I had to explain to them, this is what we're looking for. So it was kind of 
we wanted to create that tension and and do the whole thing along the way. Sure. I mean, it really, the way it's scored, it really allows you to interpret. Fight scenes are very difficult in audio drama. Um, and I, I think that really impressionistic music that gives you a really clear, um, a clear imagining of what's happening is a really useful workaround. Um, when you can't just tell something through straight design or acting, I think it's right. a really clever way to depict action. Well, we thank you for that indirect compliment. Uh, <laughs> this is Lamar speaking. And just to add to that, you know, going into this, we knew that we were doing something that would be unique with this score because we wanted people to understand each feeling is all by sound and you listening. There's there's no visuals. So you had to allow everything from the voices, from the the uh, score from any sound that you were hearing, we wanted everyone to know this is for theater of the mind. Once you hear it, and the, 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 the point of it all was to make you feel that you were there at that very moment. And that's what we hopefully had pulled off. And from the likes of what, 15 million downloads, I think we were, we're somewhere in a good space with that. Very <laughs> nice. Uh, Lamart, I have a question for you. So... Uh, as you were, so you played Zeke Copeland in the show. Yes, I did. Um, as production went on, you kind of switched between three different directors. So sometimes, so I think KC directed the first one, and then it bounced between Lawrence uh, Fishburne and Lorenz, your brother. Yes. What were the differences between those three different directorial styles? Oh, God, a wonderful question. Um, I think that... Being that, okay, Casey comes from the podcast world, I think he, you know, he was very technical in keeping everyone uh, honest to knowing the voice of it all. Um, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, we, we call him maestro. <laughs> you know, he's a actor's director, and his styling is being of the 40s, you know, be, represent what this truly is. Be in the period of the 40s. Think of how they spoke, the intensity that the voice had to come across. Again, um, no visuals, but the voice can tell all. And uh, Lorenz being my sibling, <laughs> uh, it was fascinating just to have that uh, different viewpoint uh, you know, we, we already come from a family of supportive institute with Leron, myself, and Lorenz. And so with him, uh, again, it was just the same as uh, an actor, director, where, you know, he, he pushed you in places where you may have not thought to go and or, you know, just being honest within the character. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, they all had... Uh, great value and in their different ways. I, so I, again, I've never met Casey in person, but I did, I did interview him and I've been listening back to the interview because it actually came out today. Right. Um, so he was a military broadcast engineer. And, Interesting. Um, that's, that's kind of the way that I, I think of him as like an engineer's director. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, the way that he's been producing for the last 10 years, I told him, I said like, this is the way that you perceive space in audio drama um, it's kind of like you field stripping a gun and like reassembling it 
because he just like sees everything in like little little production blocks. Yeah, he sees it for the technical he, side of he's it. He's great. Man. Yeah, and that's why great. I said he can just you, break it all out in a waveform. Man, and and here's the that's why I said up top. I said he was very technical in understanding where you had to be and what what he understood the edit before the actual scene. If that makes sense to you. And so, yeah, I, I, I completely understood when she said it. it. It it definitely aligned with what I was sharing about him, yeah. Yeah, KC was a major, you know, um, factor into the production, man. I had a great time working with him personally. Yeah. <laughs> how, did you, how did you link up with him? How did you find out about him being in this space? You know, it was – he came to us at, on a recommendation from our agency over at Paradigm. And, you know, they said he was um, from the digital department. They 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 said he was really good. And I think that he had already worked with our partner at Audio HQ, Matt Kater. Oh, is he repped by Paragon also? I think they all, I think everybody's repped at Paragon, man. It may have been all in-house. Yeah, that K, I don't know if KC's over there, but I know Matt is. And, man, I mean, you know, KC brought his A-game, and I... I I, I really enjoyed the level of professionalism that he brought to the table. There are a couple of times I had to tell him uh, it was going to be okay. <laughs> we would be all right. It's okay, Casey. Um, but overall, man, it was it was a unique experience for him because he had never worked with that level of talent before. And it was a unique experience for us in that you know we had never worked in this space before but the way we treated it was we're going to treat it like we do a film or a television show just you know just just no cameras yeah so you had the option to make this a tv series or a film why why did you choose audio it it, it shows us uh <laughs> we actually uh, <laughs> we actually went out with this project initially with uh with another writer at the time and it just, you know, Hollywood, they, we, we had a great presentation and every network that we went to was like, it's incredible. We love it. Is this, is that. Um, everything you can imagine, you know, they gave us all these praises, but no one wanted to take a chance on doing the show. Mm -hmm. So, because it was historical when, and too man, black. Look, let's call it like it is. They weren't ready for the brothers to be, you know, we weren't being oppressed. We, this isn't this isn't um, slavery. These black folks had money. They had guns. They had they political power. They were self sufficient, and they weren't really. I don't think they were really ready for that. And so, what happened was, um, the opportunity came to do the audio version of it. And it was like, it was for me, you know, when it was presented to me, I, I took it to the guys and was like, you know, this makes all the sense in the world. Let's, let's do the right thing. Let's execute this in a way that we can use a proof of concept, you know? And if we get the numbers, the numbers don't lie. If you don't think it's an audience for it, I can prove to you there's an audience for. We knew we knew what the, the what the the networks didn't know at the time that people would come see this and we wanted to see it. And at the at the time, I think Boardwalk Empire had just went off, so it was one of those things that I guess people had a full of of that. And you know, I, for whatever reason, man, they just they weren't feeling it. 
You know, they loved it, but they they no one wanted to take a chance. And right now we're at a place where, you know, once the audio series hit and I don't know if as much as the success of it as much as the execution of it, we had a, several people come our way and we wound up making a decision to uh, partner up with uh, Universal Cable Production as our studio. So right now we're making the transition for it to become a actual TV series. Congratulations. That's awesome. I thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it took a while. It took a minute. But, you know, it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the, the end result. And for us, it was we knew that this was destined for um, television. And if this was the, the process and this is the manner in which we had to go to get it done, it was a great experience. And everybody, everybody was willing to do it. And all the talent that we approached to do this show, we have some incredible talent, like everybody. I mean, you got... Tracy Ellis Ross, you got Amari Hartwick, you know, these, they, they're on like top two of the top shows on network television, right? Well, Tracy's on um, Blackish and Amari's on Power and they're killing. You have the Britney Snows of the world. You have Patrick Huesinger, you got um, Michael Raymond James, just to name a few of the people. And these are all working, successful actors and actresses. They came to the table based on the material and every talent that we went to, we went, I think we went to, we went to, uh, Alfre Woodard and she was like, I love to do it, but I could, I can't make it. A lot of people, it was a scheduling conflict. So we lost a lot of talent based on the schedule because everybody was going to start up their new television shows or movies. But the cast that we, we could have assembled with the people that said, yeah, but the, con the the schedule conflicted, it would have been even superior to what we already have. Yeah, and, and again, to add to that, the outpour of everyone who didn't get an opportunity, they're <laughs> asking, if you do a second season, can, I be, can I be a part of that? It's so many people like, man, that Bronzeville, it, it, I need to be on it. And yeah. so to know that, that tells us in our community as actors and actresses that we've done something and it's out there sticking. It's, it's, it's impactful. Yeah. Well, that's why I believe in this medium so much. It's not, not just as proof of concept for television, but just as its own as its own thing. It has this lower barrier to entry that if you, you, know, if you want to, you can just make your own thing and not have to rely uh, as much on established established money systems that are subject to systemic prejudice. Right. And that was the key that this was done outside of Hollywood. And that's kind of the narrative that we've been on as of late as a company to, you know, take matters in your own hand. You know, Hollywood didn't, they told us, no, we found another way. And now it's a different conversation because you know, I use the, the example of proof of concept, but for us, it was just like, look, man, we can, we know what we know. And this was a new medium. And, you know, as a company and as individuals, we are interested in, in what's new, what's hot, what's the next best thing. And if we can, if we can play in that field, wherever it is, we got to be, we, we got to be excellent at it. Yeah. We try to stay forward thinking 
and we understand that streaming is a very successful medium that has been introduced to the world and it's global without it having a process that's longer than normal in TV and film. So the immediacy of the connect to the people is amazing. You can't deny that that streaming is the new technology of life. So this is this is like a really notably and vocally anti-black time that we're living through. I'm not going to pretend that it's new, but it does feel especially loud these days. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to accomplish by telling these stories of black success and excellence and self-sufficiency? Uh, I think is I think is one of those things. This is Laron. I think it's imperative that we remember that, you know, um, the noise that we're hearing now is nothing new. It's just a little bit more vocal starting from the top, you know, meaning the, the White House. I'll be very clear about that. It is important for us to, you know, push through the BS and understand that we have uh, not only incredible stories to tell from a creative standpoint, but we can be responsible and, 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 and make an impact in a way and, and to counter that derogatory and negative energy with something positive. And, you know, like you said, it's about black excellence. It's a reminder that we come from somewhere special. We have a past that is uh, rooted in uh, strength, unity, and perseverance, and that it is incumbent upon us as a generation of storytellers and activists and uh, people collectively to unite with not only our community, but the other like-minded folks to stomp out the, the, the ignorance that we're hearing from the, the few who want to be considered the masses. Thank you. So regardless of what happens next with Bronzeville, whether you do a season two or not, do you want to continue to create works in this medium? Because we would love to have you. You know, it's weird because I just had a uh, meeting yesterday about another project that is a reminder of Bronzeville. It's not in terms of about the black community and its um, success as much as it is, it's a great story that I think that could be told in the audio space. There is something appealing to me. I had a great time doing this. It was a ton of work, but you know, the process and I guess the overall production itself was enticing enough to, for me to say, I want to do it. So we've been looking uh, very close to at uh, several projects that we want to partner up with Cinema Gypsy again. And you know, if, if it's not broke, why try to fix it? I think we try to, you know, reduplicate the, the work that we did before, bring the team back together. I'll use a Chicago analogy. Like, we're not like the the Bulls organization. If I'm winning six championships or three in a row, I'm not about to disband the team because of money. You bring the team back, and until you're knocked off the throne, you know, you keep going, man. So... For us, I'm definitely looking to do another audio series, and, and, and the bar must not be lowered. It has to be raised um, higher, and we need to excel beyond what we've accomplished 
I mean, it's great to do 15 million downloads, but, you know, I understand KC has something that's been going on. He has over 50 million downloads, you know? So my goal is to do something that is, you know, the numbers, you know, that's the barometer. But, you know, I wanted to continue to do um, projects that engage the people and, you know, entertain. Absolutely. I concur. (laughs) (laughs) What he said. (laughs) But at the same time, I want to I want to add that we structured this audio series in a different way. We did 10 episodes. They aired specifically each Tuesday, whereas most audio podcasts are either daily and or every other day. Oh, really? In the audio drama space, it's like a lot of like either weekly or monthly releases. Yeah, we just wanted to be in a different space and it worked out. And again, man, I don't want to take anything from Casey and his 50, but I'm definitely proud of our 15. Yeah, well, I mean, Casey's project's been out for years. And that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's know, what, that's on. the one thing we, we did learned. We 10 weeks, bro. We, we, we did good. Yeah, we, we, that's the one thing we learned. that this The audio space is evergreen content. The idea that it can live for a long period of time, and that's one of the I, KC. One of his projects has been a while for a while, but yeah. it, you know it continues to get new um, listeners, yeah. and I think that's the beauty of what I, in the end what Bronzeville will total out to be. Who knows? But you know, it's great that we uh, were a, have been able to do the numbers that we've done, and I'm not, I don't take it lightly, and I'm proud of it. Um, but I'm, I, I try for perfection and, and to do better yeah, and anything, yeah, to do anything that we do. I, I want to achieve better than what we did the last time. Of course, we took a chance in something new in a medium that was new to us and we were rewarded. And so, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And thank you for being a part of that, man. You know, you listening that that's been helpful. We're very appreciative of the fact that you would like to take time to interview us. Yeah. You know, we don't take it lightly. Of course. And um, again, man, anything we could do to support, we're into it, man. You know? All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for this. This is absolutely wonderful. Thank you, David. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Till next time, brother. Absolutely. Till next time. Okay, talk soon. Thank you, guys. If you want to check out Bronzeville, and you definitely should, subscribe to their podcast and follow them on Twitter at Bronzeville Show. You can follow us at Radio Drama. Also, hey, I have not been saying this, but we have a PayPal button on our website at radiodramarevival.com. If you like what you're hearing, if you like these interviews and being exposed to audio fiction you might not otherwise hear, consider a sustaining donation. A dollar a show, a dollar a month, whatever works for you, we would massively appreciate it. When I took over this show from Fred, I realized I couldn't do it alone. I have lots of help each week from Matt, Monique, Eli, and Heather, and their labor warrants compensation. If you can't spare the bucks, you can always help us grow the show by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, sweet. Thank you. And now for some mid-century gangland credits inspired by my friend Zev, an animator and illustrator whose work can be found at zevshavat.com. That's C-E-V-C-H-E-V-A-T dot com. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger, whose music can be heard on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Fightin' Matt Boudreaux, the heavyweight champion of Pulaski Street. He takes all comers, and even when they tell him to throw the fight, he doesn't. 
Our interview's producer is Eli 2-Bit McElveen, who's always good for a quarter. But let a week go by, and you owe him a buck and a beer. He calls it the Lake Ontario Shuffle. Our researchers are Heather Squawkbox Cohen and Monique Squirrely Boudreaux. Heather's a switchboard operator who runs a side business in blackmail. And Squirrely Boudreaux has the nicest bar in Six Corners. Because if you so much as scuff the paint, she'll have you by the... Well, there's a reason men call her Squirrely. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse, who's got a finger in every pie and a producer credit in every podcast. But nobody who ain't a made man has ever seen his face, and they ain't gonna. Every time a rival podcasting concern busts down the door of Fred's last known address, they stumble into the sitting room of some terrified WBEZ correspondent, numbly reciting traffic and weather together on the eights. He escaped again, they say. Clever bastard. He escaped again. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.